But it is amazing. If you had asked me uh, before the service, how many people are we going to find any $2 bills? And are we going to find any uh, postage stamps? You'd say, well, no. But amazing, an exercise like this begins to reveal that there's a lot more resources in the room than you might think. It begins to reveal that there's things that are hidden that can come out. There's things that we didn't know we have that we now know we have. We're going to talk about today a habit, a spiritual habit, that begins to reveal things in our lives, strengths that we have that we may not know, weaknesses that we may keep hidden that we need to bring out into the open. We're also going to find that God offers rewards as we pursue the truth in the midst of it. So, as the rewards are going out, I want to tell you a story. Psychology Today had an article, and they said that those with high emotional intelligence often had better marriages because they understood themselves and their spouses better. They often had deeper connections with their kids, and they said the secret, and they were more productive at work. And they said the secret to to emotional intelligence came down to one main factor, self-awareness. Self-awareness. And yet they had a uh, psychologist in Australia who said there's a big problem human beings have when it comes to being aware of the truth about themselves. As he did a study, he found that continent after continent, gender after gender, person after person, we round up. We always round ourselves up. He referred to it as vain brain. We will do anything to protect our ego. So feedback comes to us from our family, from our friends, from our colleagues. And it may not be how we perceive ourselves or how we want to perceive ourselves. So we protect our ego by saying, they got a bad attitude. We protect our ego by saying, well, that's not true. We protect our ego by saying, well, you're just being too sensitive. Or you're being too harsh. And that if we don't overcome the vain brain that protects us from seeing the truth, we won't develop self-awareness. And if we don't develop self-awareness, we're going to not have access to the best kind of marriages, the best kind of relationships with our kids, and those who can manage people by knowing themselves and others can have the most productive departments in a company. So how do we overcome Vain brain. Well, the Bible is actually a self-awareness tool. The Bible is a lot of things, but it's a self-awareness tool that does two things. It can till the ground of your heart to give you access to the truth, but it also, because of that, increases productivity. Because as you begin to become more and more aware of yourself, the truth about how you view others, the view of uh, truth about the world, you actually become increasingly productive in your understanding of yourself. And so I want to look today at two habits. My hope is that these two habits, tilling and plowing, can give us access to the secrets in our hearts that we may not know that we have. The first habit, habit number one, is what I'm going to call tilling through questions. When you read the Bible, it's designed to create questions. Where are you in the story? What part of this might be true of you? And as you till your heart with questions, you become more and more aware of the truth about yourself and others. Jesus tells a story. A great multitude had gathered, and when they had come uh, to earth from every city, he spoke by a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed. As he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled upon. The birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on the rock. And as soon as it sprang up, it withered, because it lacked moisture. 
And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked it. And others fell on good ground. It sprang up and yielded a crop a hundredfold. And then he said to them and cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And you say, Wow, that was very opaque. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> so we're going to dissect it together. First thing I want you to notice is that phrase, a hundredfold. That phrase is only used one other time in the Bible. It's used way back in the book of Genesis. And it spoke of a miraculous crop. Abraham had a son named Isaac. And Isaac, one year, is so blessed by God, he has such a bumper crop, they use the exact same phrase, a hundredfold. So to the audience who heard Jesus saying, I'm offering you a hundredfold benefit, they would have said, wow, that's miraculous. The only time I've ever heard of a hundredfold produce was back in Genesis chapter 26. In Genesis 26 verse 12, it says this. It says, Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. So Jesus is saying, if you want to have the kind of bumper crop life that Isaac had, you need to allow this parable to put questions in your heart and ask, what kind of soil are you? Because what Isaac had then, with the blessing of God, you can have now if you allow the story to sink deeper into you. But the second thing he had said is this. Let he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's a reoccurring um, axiom of Jesus. It's sort of a weird one, right? Like he who has ears, all right, well, that's most of us, he should hear. Why does he say that? Because Jesus is saying there's a difference between listening and hearing. You ever had that? You're talking to your son or daughter, and they're not looking at you the whole time? You're not listening to me. I can hear you. Yeah, but you're not listening to me. There's a difference between listening. It's where you engage in the truth. You incorporate the truth. You say, I want to figure out where I am in the story. What part of that's true? What part of that's not true? How might that be true of me? That's active listening. And Jesus is saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Go back over my story again. Figure out which soil you are. And you'll be more productive. Begin to bombard yourself with questions and fill your heart with questions. Am I the thorn? Am I the, the rocky soil? Which one am I? This productivity leads to self-awareness. My wife and I, when we were first married, I got married on my 21st birthday. We've been married a couple of years. I was 23, she was 25. Went through a book called Like a Rock. And the book began with the idea of what do you want to be said at your funeral? And we had journal entries. We'd write down the character qualities we wanted to be said about us. At our funeral, I remember my wife, she said she wanted a lot of the character qualities of her grandma Eva, her kindness, her hospitality, her strength, her fortitude. As we began to journal and bombard ourselves with questions, we would have verses in the Bible to reflect upon different character qualities we may currently have or not have. But once you painted a picture of who you wanted to be, there were more questions to bring about self-awareness. What part of that is currently not true of you? Why is it not true? What are the obstacles getting in the way of that being true? And we began to journal together, and we were in a small group with other couples, and we began to share. And I'd say, honey, I'm realizing this is the kind of man I want to be, and here are some things in my life that are currently not living up to that. And what was so great about that, especially for her, she'd be like, oh, really? You noticed that, huh? 
but vice versa. Because in our marriage, it's so much better when you let God and the Bible begin to cultivate change in you rather than trying to have somebody else change you. Because I don't know about you, but I don't respond well when my wife tries to change me. And she doesn't usually respond well when I try and change her. But the Bible and questions begin to create a context that we can be honest about our weaknesses and say, I want to be more productive. I want that hundredfold blessing in my marriage. I want that hundredfold blessing with my kids. But to do that, I've got to get access to the truth. Now, you might think, well, self-awareness, that's sort of squishy. It's mysterious. I don't see how you got from the parable to there anyway. Well, if you feel that way, that you're not sure what Jesus is saying, you are in great company. The disciples who hear Jesus' story have no idea what he's talking about. The disciples. In fact, this next passage, I'll put it up. This whole passage can be summarized in the Greek with one word that means, huh? Because that's what the disciples are saying. The disciples turned to him and said, what does this parable mean? Huh? And he said, to you it's been given the... To know the mysteries of the kingdom of God and you don't get what I'm saying. But to the rest, it's given in parables that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Jesus is saying there is a way to see something but not really see it. To hear something but not really hear it. That is the vain brain. We filter out feedback. We see it but we don't really see it. We hear it but we don't really incorporate it. That is this tendency to not allow the truth to take root in us about who we are and who we could be. We reject it. We filter it out. We'll talk about that, how that happens in just a moment. There's a book that talks about this tendency in leaders. It's called Why Great Leaders Don't Take Yes for an Answer. How do you cultivate healthy conversations in families and organizations that gets access to views that are counter to your own? It's a long quote, but stay with me. Here's what it says. CEOs tend to overlook the lesson Moses learned several thousand years ago. Namely, getting the Ten Commandments written down and communicated was the easy part. Getting them implemented is the challenge. Candor, conflict, and debate appear conspicuously absent during the decision-making processes. Managers feel uncomfortable expressing dissent. Groups converge quickly on a particular solution. Individuals assume that anonymity exists. As a result, critical assumptions remain untested. Creative alternatives do not surface. The problem begins with the person directing the process, as their words and deeds discourage a rigorous exchange of views. The best insurance against crossing ethical divides is a room full of skeptics. By advocating dissent, top executives can create a climate where wrongdoing will not go unchallenged. Now, that's a long quote. Let me tell you how you'd feel this. You're in a meeting. Discussions are going on. Somebody voices something that's a little different than what the leader says, and he gets the look. Well, that's just something I was maybe thinking about. The nonverbals communicate, I want your opinion, meaning I want you to validate what I'm doing. As soon as the meeting's over, it ends with, so does anybody have any concerns? I don't have any concerns. As soon as the meeting's over, you have the real meeting. The meeting after the meeting. What did you think of that meeting today? I thought that was really ridiculous what he said. Well, me too. Why didn't you say something? I didn't say anything because it didn't sound like he really wanted it. He never wants any feedback, right? The meeting after the meeting is where the real conversation happens. 
because we don't have access to the truth, because we don't feel comfortable enough. We're not rigorous about pursuing truth enough about ourselves and our ideas to say, I need a room full of skeptics to challenge my assumptions. The Bible becomes that voice in your life. It challenges you about your views of God. It challenges you about your views of yourself. It says, are you sure? Are you sure? It begins to question you as you question it. It begins to dig deeper into your life and say, I want to help you get to the truth and the truth will set you free. So that's the first habit. It's tilling our hearts with questions. The second one, we really begin to dig a little deeper because habit number two is we begin to plow the fields of our heart through reflection. Now, introverts are often better than us extroverts at reflection and contemplation. I process my emotions and my thoughts out loud, and that's how I begin to reflect on what I think and what I feel. Others of us are more introverted. We do take the time to write a journal or to sit and reflect. Why didn't I speak up in that meeting? And why did I get mad at that fight I had with my spouse? Why does my kid's disobedience not just make me mad, but triggers anger in me? It's a lost art, the the habit of reflection and contemplation, but it's what cultivates our hearts to real change. So Jesus mentions four soils. After the parables, the first parable, and the disciples say, I don't get it, he retells the exact same parable, and he begins to fill in some of those spaces. And what he wants is for you and I and his disciples to say, which soil am I? So we're going to try and reflect together. Back through this parable again, Jesus is going to retell it. Which soil am I? Let's reflect on that. The first soil I'm going to call bird brain. Here's what he says. The parable is this. The seed is the word of God. It's truth coming into your life. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word. Now, you might immediately see the word devil and think, all right, I got the red guy in pajamas with a pitchfork. I'm not sure I believe that. And you already turned off. Now, I happen to believe that there's good and evil in the world, and the idea that there might be a personal source of evil, that's very, I'm very open-minded about that. But if you're not, just throw out the word devil and ask yourself this. Is there something that steals the truth from you? Maybe it's a generational pattern. Somebody addresses your anger with you, and you say, well, I'm Irish, we're always angry. All right, so it's your defense mechanism. It's your background. But there's something that takes the truth away. It filters out the feedback. It's a a mechanism. It's a psychological piece. It's a lie you believe about yourself, or it's the source of evil. But something takes away the word out of your heart, lest you would really believe it and incorporate it and be saved, which actually means delivered. Now, for many people, you see the word saved, and you think it means get to heaven. But he's not speaking about heaven he's speaking about living when truth comes into your life from god do you believe it let it take root and deliver you deliver you from lies deliver you from addictions deliver you from tendencies and bad habits are you letting the word the truth get into your heart or are you filtering out feedback now we all filter out bad feedback but often we filter out good feedback too so here's the question with bird brain Am I filtering out truth? Am I filtering out patterns? Have I heard certain tendencies from my kids? And the same thing came up with my spouse several times. 
Same thing came up with my last performance review. And as you think about the three people with three different ages and different genders, and you think about different backgrounds, you're thinking, how could they all be so wrong? Man, it's just amazing how stubborn people are that they could keep being so critical, right? So you're filtering it out. So think to yourself, we all do this. But reflection is, wow, what, when do I do this? And, and where do I do this? Why am I so unwilling to look at the truth about myself? Why do I let this take it away? 1996, Rob Hall and Scott Fisher took a group up to Mount Everest. They had the two main guides, they had the leaders, several guides, and they had eight paying clients. It's a lot of money, a lot of resources, a lot of planning goes into this moment. Now, to get to the actual summit, there's a rule of thumb for all leaders. If you don't make it to this particular location by 2 o'clock, no matter how much money, no matter how much energy, no matter how many people say we can do it, don't do it. The 2 o'clock rule, it's called. Because if you leave at 2 o'clock, you've got to make it to the summit, 26,000 feet, and make it back down to that place where you'll be safe before the, the temperature drops. And it'll take you 18 hours to do it. But if you're not at the right location at 2 o'clock, no matter what anybody thinks or feels or senses, don't go. Well, 1996, they brought a group of eight clients and guides. But those guides had never worked with each other before. And many of them had seen the two leaders as their heroes for years. So they got to the, the location, and it was past 2 o'clock. And, and the leader said, well, I think we've got a, a rather athletic group. We, we put a lot of energy into this. We're breaking the sort of cardinal rule, but I think we can do it. Does anybody have any concerns? The guides who were with it really wanted to get their approval. They really didn't want to voice their consent. They had some pretty serious concerns. There's a 2 o'clock rule for a reason, but they didn't voice it. So the truth was filtered out. They ventured up to the summit, and on the way down, five people died. Five people got killed because of a lack of access to the truth. Now, in our lives, people are probably physically dying, but I know a lot of marriages that die, relationships that die, people that leave good companies because of bad managers, all because we don't get access to the truth about ourselves. And vice versa, when you do, incredible freedom comes. You not only bless yourself, but I am currently experiencing the benefits of a field because my grandfather made some decisions that I'm still benefiting from. And my father made some decisions I'm benefiting from. And my mom made some decisions about the field that I'm still benefiting from. So the productivity, the hundredfold blessing God has for us, it impacts generations. So bird brain. The second one is the sugar high. Jesus says, there's another kind of seed Let's reflect and see if we're sugar high. I change until change is hard. I change. Initially, I hear a good message about new habits. I like the idea of having a better marriage or being more open to honesty or being more open to truth. And so initially, I receive the word with joy. That sounds great. I want that. And it lasts for a little bit. And these have no roots. So they believe for a while. But in times of temptation, they fall away. When things get tough, I go, hey, I'm really open to feedback. Hey, could you share some feedback with me? Do you feel like there's anything I could do better and somebody shares it and you're like, oh, that hurt. Oh, this is good for me. This is good for me. But about a week later, somebody shares it and you're like, you know what? The bruise to my ego or the bruise to my reputation or the pain of actually accessing this isn't worth it and we shut the door. We have a sugar high. It goes well for a while and it quickly peters peters out. 
But that is so true of me. How often do I start change and not finish it? Now, most of us think this is a behavior problem. But look at the word here, believe. The problem is you believe for a while, but then you don't, you don't stop behaving. You stop believing it. Meaning, I believe knowing the truth about myself is good until a certain point I go, I don't believe it's worth it, right? It's not a behavior problem. It's a belief problem. I'll give you an example. In his book, The Power of Habits, stories told of Tony Dungy. Dungy came into the box and he was teaching them habit formation. He said, if you can get into a habit of cues, a routine of knowing what to do, and the reward of the sack, don't worry about how you used to do it. We're going to teach you how to go quicker and quicker and quicker. If you can move faster than the other people, by practicing this cue, routine, or reward, we'll beat other teams. In 1999, they won six in a row and fell apart. In 2000, they got one game away from the Super Bowl and fell apart. He said, what happened? Here's what he said. We would practice and everything would come together. And then we'd get to a big game and it was like training disappeared, Coach Dungy said. Afterward, my players would say, well, it was a critical play and I went back to what I knew. Or I felt like I had to step it up. What they were really saying was that they trusted our system most of the time, but when everything was on the line, belief broke down. Not behavior broke down, belief broke down, because your behavior always follows your beliefs. Do you really, really believe that the truth will set you free, even if it stings in the meantime? Do you really believe that being generous is better than being stingy? Do you really believe that forgiveness is better than bitterness? Do you really believe fearlessness is better than a life of fear? Do you really believe that faith in a God who controls the world is better than worry? Do you really believe that he can control things rather than you needing to control things? The sugar high is when our belief falls apart. And we need to get down and say, what is it I'm believing? What's the alternative that's competing with this? Our third type of soil is the chokehold. The chokehold. He says it this way. He says, the truth is choked out by substitutes. Now, the ones, the seed of God, the truth that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And it brings no fruit to maturity. Now, he doesn't say this wrong with caring. He doesn't say there's anything wrong with riches. He doesn't say anything wrong with pleasures. But there does come a time that the good things in your life choke out the great things. Only you and I can figure out which ones those might be. But oftentimes there's good things in your life and those good things keep you from great things happening. I remember when we were thinking about adoption. I had some, a lot of good things. Back, I was thinking about this moment right here before we adopted my son. But four years before we thought about adoption, I thought, by the time I'm 44, I'm going to be empty nester. That's pretty sweet. Adopt? Start over? Babies? Car top carriers, the good things wanting comfort and convenience, nothing wrong with that, but those good things kept me from even thinking about the possibility of adoption. And then we found out Quinn had special needs. Oh my goodness, the, the challenges. I had to weed through the thorns of good things wanting comfort, wanting to enjoy my marriage. All these good things were keeping me from being open to the possibility that God might want to do a great thing that contradicted my convenience and my comfort. What might be the good things in your life that are keeping you from God sprouting up some great things? I wrote in my journal these words. What's more important to me 
than knowing the truth about God, myself, and the world? Is it my ego? Is it my reputation? Is it your need to be right? Is, is you, do you believe your need to be right is more important than reconciling with somebody you've hurt? Is the need to be right choking your marriage? Or choking a relationship with a son or daughter? Why would you not let grow reconciliation? You still want to be right, but it doesn't choke out relationship. Why is that? Allow the Bible and these questions to till your soul and figure out why that is. JFK had the same issue when the Bay of Pigs fiasco occurred. He turned to his advisors after it was all over and said, How could we have been so stupid? Why did we make such bad decisions? And he realized that they had filtered out the truth. They had choked out the, the truth. And so he totally rearranged the communication system to make sure he had skeptics in the room. He made sure that people who didn't agree with their assumption would be in there and talk about why it might be a bad idea. He had been choked out because they had purposely put the people who disagreed with them out of the meetings to make critical decisions. And it led to a disaster. So he purposely put patterns and habits into the organization to make sure he had access to truth. And that's where the Bible comes in. When I begin to regularly read my Bible, it's a chance for truth to come in and challenge my assumptions. I might say all religions are basically the same. And I really want to believe that. But if you study different religions, they don't say the same thing. Totally different view of God. He's energy in a person. He's good and bad. He's just good. He's transcendent. He's transcendent and imminent. They've got a totally different view of the problem and solution to life. Totally different view of the afterlife. So you might want to believe all religions are the same, but the truth is they're not. What does it mean to look into that and figure, well, who is Jesus? I think he's just a good teacher. Then you read and he's claiming to be God all the time. Well, if I came up here and told you I was God and told you to worship me, you might have some concerns. My wife does all the time. I don't understand why she didn't get it. So you might say Jesus is a good person, but what kind of a good person constantly asks people to worship him? I say, wow, Jesus is either far more or far less than a, my assumption. But you begin to allow that to speak into you. You have those questions that challenge your assumptions. And you come to the fourth soil. And the fourth soil is the soil I want in my heart, and that is tilled soil. I'm open to the truth. I allow it to deposit itself in me. Here's this quote from uh, uh, the book called why great leaders don't take yes for an answer. He says, A few mental traps stand in the way as leaders. We try to manage conflict and consensus. For instance, most individuals search for information in a biased manner. They tend to downplay data that contradicts their existing views and beliefs, while emphasizing the information that supports their original conclusions. Overconfidence bias becomes a factor in many situations as well. Most of us tend to overestimate our own capacities or capabilities, Consequently, we may not recognize when we need to solicit input and advice from others, or we downplay the doubts that others display regarding our judgments and decisions. The Bible's been saying this for 2,000 years. The Bible calls it a self-deceiving heart. This is just sort of corporate lingo on that. And that we need the Bible, we need God to speak into our life in a habit of having access to the truth to come against our bias assumptions. So that we can have what Jesus calls tilled soil. Now here's this tilled soil. Next slide. Tilled soil is somebody who vigorously cultivates the soil for truth. Jesus says, the ones that fell on the good ground. And here's the question we need to ask ourselves. Am I good ground? 
How would I know? Here's how you become good ground for the truth to spring up. Are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart. What does it mean to have a noble and good heart? The word noble means vigorous. I'm vigorously going after the truth about myself. I want to make sure I've cultivated. I'm open to whatever God might say. I'm open to change. I'm open to new information. I'm open. When you have that, you keep it, the truth, and you bear fruit with patience. Now, why does it say with patience? Because often when you learn a new habit, it takes a while for that new habit to spring up. Do you remember when you first learned to type? Here was me in ninth grade. And I was pretty good at it. I was really fast at it. And then they asked me to put my hands in these weird positions. A colon, A colon, A colon, space, HG. And every time I had a paper, I would go back to the old method because it was a lot faster. I didn't believe that putting my hands in this position would ultimately pay off. But by the middle of my ninth grade year, I said, you know what, I'm going to believe it. I'm going to believe that if I keep at this, I'll eventually be able to type faster this way than I can this way. I gave myself access to the truth. I believe something. And because of that, of course, I type faster today than the hunt and peck method. But it was a belief issue. With patience, God says, it's going to be hard at first. You're going to say that can't be true. Giving is not better than receiving. It can't be true. Forgiving is better than bitterness. It can't be true. But I'm going to believe it. And with patience, it begins to bear good fruit. Which soil am I? Which soil are you? You see, the Bible is a self-awareness tool, and it is designed by God to do two things, to burn away thorns and to break up rocks. Because after Jesus finishes this parable, he tells one more. He says, no one, when he has lit a lamp, covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed, but sets it on a lampstand, that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is secret that will not be revealed or anything hidden that will not be known and come to life. He says, you need a lamp in your life. This isn't like an electric lamp. This is a lighted lamp. And it will help reveal secrets. It will help get the hidden things and bring them out into the open. Look what he says next. Therefore, take heed how you hear. Are you really listening to the issue behind the issue? Are you really listening to the concerns being expressed? Therefore, take heed how you listen, how you hear. For whoever has the truth, when you're open to the truth, to him will be given even more. That's why you can have a hundredfold blessing. Whoever does not have a listening heart, you'll lose even what you do have. It will be taken from you. Let me tell you how this metaphor would have played out in Jesus' day. I got a chance to visit a field in Israel and see how those fields worked where Jesus would have been explaining this idea. Look at that thorn. We were asked to go out into a field and clear the rocks. Because for every rock you pull out, that's a lot of sprouts that could come up in that spot. You start taking out a few rocks, and it's a lot more crop coming out. So we took an exercise. We began to just grab rocks out of the field. And the problem was you couldn't get to the rocks. They're covered with thorns everywhere. Big thorns like this one with the sticker bush and lots of small ones. And that field, you see on the right-hand side here, you can see big rocks, but there are thousands, thousands of small rocks out there, but you couldn't get access to them because of the thorns. Well, this is true in Jesus' day as well. So if you wanted to pull the, the rocks out of your field, you would get a torch, a lamp. You would light it, and you'd burn the fields. 
You'd let it on fire, and as it began to burn through the fields, the thorns would be gone. You'd get rid of the good things in your life so that you could experience great things. You'd have to burn them away. And as you burn them away, it was now so much easier to get access to those rocks. And now you could begin to pull out some rocks in your life. So the leader of our trip asked us all to go out into the field and grab a rock. I remember my wife was working on a particular rock. This was back in 2012. And we got down, and as we're digging out of this rock, it was a lot bigger than we first imagined. And as I came over to help her, as we're going to find the edges of the rock and get under the rock and pry over in the rock, it took us a while. And she said, I want to get this rock out because this rock represents the depression I've had for the last couple of years. And it's affected us. It's affecting our kids. It's affecting me. It's affecting us. Let's pull this rock out together. So we worked together, digging and digging, and we yanked this rock out. We walked it over to a big pile. We threw it on the pile where hundreds of people who have visited this site have done before. And then we came back in 2014, and my wife shared with this group. She said, I want you to know that two years ago, I pulled a rock out of my field. Physically, we did it, my husband and I here, but we also metaphorically, that became a decision for us to put new habits in our life to to help move toward happiness and and move toward changes in our our thinking and changes in our patterns. And she said, two years later, I got to tell you, there's been a bumper crop in our marriage, a bumper crop in our family, because I did the hard work of facing some sadness, some generational patterns that go back to parents and grandparents. I dug this rock out because I wanted to be free and I wanted my kids and grandkids to be free. And I'm free today. Pretty uncharacteristic of my wife. She's not one to share publicly ever. Um, It was a real incredible moment. So my question today for you is, wouldn't you want to take some rocks out of your life that would bring you freedom as well as your children and grandchildren? Let me tell you another story I heard when we were there. I'll invite the band to come up. While we were there, we looked upon the field and we saw in the middle of the field was a big old hole. See where the, the, the soil is? I mean, somebody really dug something out of there. If you walk over to that spot, the hole was a rock boulder. It must have been 100 pounds, maybe 200 pounds. We said, what happened here? What happened in this place? He said, oh, that was about 15 years ago. I brought a group here. And as I did, there was a man who went out into the field and he started uncovering this rock. He thought it was small. As he uncovered it, it got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Then he began to feel around the edges until he found the edges of the rock. He got down on his hands and knees as he began to dig and he realized this thing was bigger than he could imagine. He grabbed a stick, he began to pry it, hammer, began to push it. Usually this exercise took 10, 15 minutes. He was there 30 minutes and 45 minutes. He was a teacher. Several of his students were on the trip. They came over to help him. As they came over to help, he just reacted. He says, get away from me. i got to do this. i got to do this myself. I sort of backed away and went over the corner. He just kept digging. And now he starts sobbing as he's working on this boulder, digging and digging and prying and digging. Everybody's praying. They didn't know what was going on, but this, this was a significant defining moment in his life. As he pried his way into the rock, he finally got to the place that was a little loose. With all of his might, he reached and he took the rock and he flipped it up. Got out of the hole and he flipped it again. And he walked it end over end. It was about 180 pound rock. And he threw it on that pile that you saw a few moments ago. 
And in that pile sits this gigantic rock. As he wept, he said, I'm sorry, I got mad. I'm sorry I reacted, but I felt like I needed to do this today. Well, what was it all about? He said, I have been angry at my dad for 20 years. I've not spoken to him for 20 years. That has been a rock in my garden. My kids don't know their grandfather. And this rock has kept fields from growing in my life. And today is the day God told me to dig out this rock. And I did. They prayed for him that this metaphoric decision would lead to new habits. He came back a few years later and gave a report. I said, so what's happened with your father? He says, you will not believe it. I went back and forgave my dad. We're not only talking again, but my dad would pass away a few years later, and I got a chance to build a relationship with my father before it was too late. My kids got to know their grandfather for the first time. We had him over. In fact, when my dad began to lose his health, we put him in an apartment over our garage. And I am so glad I did the hard work of facing my demons and facing those rocks and breaking them up because I got something so sweet that's going to last for generations because I dug out that rock. When Jesus told the story, he must have been referencing the concept in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 29. It says this, Is not my word like a fire that can burn away the thorns in your life? Is not it like a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces? The reason we need a habit of transforming study is we need God to burn away the stuff that keeps us from accessing the chunks that can be removed from our life to bring freedom. Today what we're going to do is give you a chance to do what my wife and I did, give you and I a chance to do what that man did with his father. If you came in today, you're handed a rock. If you didn't get a rock, you can just have a metaphoric rock and it can just be a moment for you. As the band plays this next song, we're going to stand together, and if you feel led, you can walk forward and just drop your rock into the wheelbarrow as a way of saying, today's the day. This is the thing I want out of my field. And there's no pressure to come forward. Either you didn't get a rock, or you want to come forward with that rock, that's fine. But there's something powerful about realizing that all of us have rocks in our field. There's something very corporate about knowing that we all have things that we're working on and need God to work on. So why don't we stand together in case somebody in your aisle wants to come forward and throw in the rock. As the band sings, hey, we'll start with this section here. Oops. Man, there it is. We'll start with this section here. And as folks start moving, whenever it's comfortable for you, just come forward and drop it in and just say, God, today's the day. I'm going to break up the rocks in my life. Let me pray for us. Father, we just ask that this will be a time of freedom, a time of decision-making, a time of us realizing that we want more productivity and more of truth, access to truth in our lives. We want more freedom. And this is in Jesus' name. Amen. And I'll go first and I'll begin. There's a lot of rocks in there. But God loves honesty. It's only when we come face to face with the truth that the field's not what we want them to be that God can begin to develop that. Somebody lead us in a prayer as we head out today. Maybe you want to just reflect these words back to God in your own words. Say, God, I need help with the rocks in my field. God, I believe I need forgiveness.
But I believe I need help facing the truth. I want that hundredfold crop in my life. I believe you forgave me. And I ask you to lead me. In Jesus' name. Amen. And God says when we bring our, our, uh, our wrongdoing to Him, He separates as far as the east is from the west. He makes it disappear. So today, you probably didn't realize you're going to be coming to church and getting stoned. So I appreciate you being here with us. So I'm going to escort our, uh, our rocks out of the building as we conclude. just want to say thanks for being here. Appreciate you coming. We want Horizon to be a place that people can be honest about their mistakes and their problems. And we invite you to join us again next week as we continue our series on habits. Thanks again for being here.